Hello? Hey, um, I need help. Sure, what's going on? I feel like no matter how hard I try, I can never live up to the standard that Jesus set. If we were capable of living up to Jesus' standard, there would have been no reason for him to die. I get that, but I still feel like my sins are pushing me back when I'm supposed to be freed. As long as we're on this earth, we'll all battle with something. That's why I keep bugging you to get more involved, so you can see you're not alone. Yeah, but if they knew my past, they wouldn't want anything to do with me. <laughs> you think you're the only one with a past they'd rather forget? Have you seen a baptism video recently? Yeah, I guess you're right, but... How do I push through this? Just stop letting the enemy push you around and remember that you're not going through this alone. I'm a Christian, but I still dot, 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 part four, don't know my purpose. So you know if you've been here any length of time for the series, if you've been here for the whole series, when I started the series, I said, I know the first three messages, I know exactly what the Lord wants me to share with you, but I don't know the fourth one. And I had been praying all four weeks and there was just no answer. It felt like the heavens were brass and I did not hear an answer from God. And so when God doesn't speak, what do you do? You Google it. So I went to Google. And I typed in, I'm a Christian. And then this was, the, this was the filled in suggestions. And right there at the top, I'm a Christian. I didn't get to but. I didn't feel the need to. I'm a Christian, and then now what? And I thought, wow, if that is the top, and that's, by the way, that's based on their search uh, requests. And so what do people most often fill in the blank after I'm a Christian in the Google search bar? And I thought it was interesting that now what would come first. So I thought, okay, maybe that's a sign that God is saying, talk about their purpose. But I have a hard time talking about the Christian's purpose. And I'll explain for a moment, in a moment. And so I was at breakfast on Thursday with some pastor friends and I was sharing with them my thoughts about the weekend what I was gonna be preaching, and we always have that conversation, what are you preaching this weekend? And so I, I said, well, I honestly think that I'm going to be preaching about finding your purpose, but honestly, I hate talking about it. It's just, I don't know, some people love it, I just don't like it, and I said it, and as I was saying that, as I said, I don't know if I should be teaching this this weekend about finding your purpose, and as I said it, the waitress came up behind me at the restaurant and was delivering our food, and she overheard me say it, and she said, I would love to know my purpose. I said, okay, that's another sign. Maybe this is the Lord speaking to me. How many know Google can be used by God <laughs> and waitresses can be used by God? So I had a chance to tell her what her purpose was and hopefully one day she will make it into the church. I've invited her several times and I'm praying for her to come to know her purpose. But I thought, okay, if she needs to know, there's a good chance you need to know. And so we're gonna talk about your purpose. Now, why do I not like to talk about your purpose? your purpose? Here's why. Because sometimes when we talk about finding our purpose, we make it a very self-centered goal. Are you with me? Like, like what it becomes is it becomes self-serving Christian belief. Like, what, not what do I exist for in light of the God of the universe and his plan, but rather, what does God in the universe exist for in light of my purpose and my plan? 
And a lot of times, especially in America, where individuality is so important to our culture, we unconsciously or subconsciously make God the means to our end. And what we have to realize, this is kind of like baseline theology about purpose. What we have to realize is that none of us are really the center of the universe and that God has been up to something well before we got here. And when we're gone, he's still going to be doing something. And so it's not really about how does God exist to help me accomplish my purpose, but how do I exist to help God accomplish his purpose? Are you with me? I get this from the most famous, one of the most famous Bible verses in Scripture. It's actually something you've probably heard quoted by even non-believers. It comes from Romans 8.28. And it says, and some of you know what this, this text says. It says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together. How many have heard that phrase? You've heard that phrase, right? Even non-Christians have heard that phrase. All things work together for good, but finish the rest of the text. For those who are called according to, last two words, everybody? His purpose, not my purpose, his purpose. So I exist to fulfill God's purpose in the universe. God does not exist to fulfill my purpose. Are you tracking with me? So important that you get this. Because if you live the opposite of what I'm telling you, you will be disappointed with God. God will quote unquote, let you down. Your dreams will not come true. You will not be the next American idol. And life will seem confusing because you're not the center. He's the center. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the one who saves us. He's the one who cleanses us. He's the one who died for us. He's the one who calls us. And he's the one who has a plan and a purpose for us in his huge plan for the universe. Many years ago, a very popular preacher named Rick Warren wrote a book that sold 90 million copies called The Purpose Driven Life wildly successful best-selling book. I think the best-selling nonfiction book in history outside of the Bible. And um, he uh, talks about five purposes. And I take those five purposes, I, I really believe that they're right, but I take them, I make them three. Why? Because I have a hard time counting to five. No, um, because I think it can consolidate them into three. And so I want you to write this down in your notes. Your purpose is threefold. Number one, Love and become like Jesus. Rick Warren divides this into two, worship and discipleship. But I believe that you eventually become what you love. I believe you eventually become what you love. You ever see a really old married couple, married 50 plus years? They start to look like each other, don't they? Because that's what love will do. They've been up and down, in and out. They've been, you know, through the hard times, the good times, better, worse, richer, poor. They stuck it out, and they start to look like each other. Or maybe the marriage illustration isn't working for you. You ever see a dog in its owner? <laughs> you ever notice how often the dog looks just like the owner? That's because the dog so loves the owner, he becomes like the owner. <laughs> well, I believe that as we love God, we become like God. 
Worship happens in this place, yes, and it happens in our world, in our, in our, real, in our regular lives. And let me just say, everybody's a worshiper. If you don't worship God, you'll worship something else. And what I mean by worship is something else will get your highest allegiance. Either money, your children, your job, your popularity, whatever. Something's going to become the object that, th that you think brings you validation, self-worth, purpose, whatever. So my advice is worship God because he's worth it. And as you become like God, you are empowered to do life as the Lord Jesus did life, and you want that. That's called discipleship. But number two on your purpose, love and serve the family of Jesus. So not just a vertical relationship with God, but a horizontal relationship with the body of Christ. Every Christian needs a church, period. Every Christian needs a church, period. Say it with me. One, two, three. Every Christian needs a church. Say it like you're in church and proud. One, two, three. Every Christian needs a church, period. That's right. We need a body. We need a family. The Bible says, if my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will receive me. The Bible says in Psalm 68 that he puts the lonely in families. We just had two major uh, mass shootings this weekend in this country. Our country is being shaken. And the reason why, and every time this happens, we find out what's the common denominator with the kid who does the shooting. Politicians are going to tell you he had a gun or he was white. These are the new excuses for why the person shoots up somebody. But that's ridiculous. Every single time this happens, we find out he was, number one, most likely fatherless, no family, and number two, a huge loner. Somebody who spends way too much time alone. And this anger builds up and he, then he goes out and he shoots people. You are not meant to do life alone. Loneliness will frustrate you. And we are living in an incredibly lonely time. The reason why is because we've got these devices that isolate us. I got two of them right here to show you that isolate us from other people. And we need to start putting that down and start getting in relationship with the family that God has planted us in. Those of you watching online, I'm so glad that you're watching online, but do you have a church family? Do you have people that you can call when trouble hits? Do you have somebody that you're helping through their trouble? Do you have someone that can be your brother or sister in arms in the fight of your life? If not, get yourself to Waters Church. You need a family. You need a church where you fellowship, you get to know one another, and you serve one another. Three, my purpose is to love others by sharing the message of Jesus. So we don't just love each other, we love the lost. We love people who are far from God. And I want our church to always be a church that's geared and, and ready to receive people far from God. To receive people that are far from God. I want our church to be here for the adulterer, the murderer, the liar, the fornicator, the greedy, whatever it is. Do you know why? Because that's who we were. And Jesus saved us. And if he could save us, he could save anybody. And so we want to be a church that's active in evangelism. That's sharing the good news of Jesus. Here's what evangelism isn't, though. It's not arguing politics. It's not arguing social hot-button issues. It's not arguing if there's a God or not. It's simply telling people what Jesus has done. That's it. 
That's our message. Our message is not believe like us, act like us, think like us, vote like us. Nope. Our message is 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became flesh, went to the cross, went to the grave, came out of the grave, and is now at the right-hand side of God the Father and has saved us from our sins. Amen? Oh, you're a lively audience on this August morning. I love it. Now, those are our purposes, but what does that look like in practicality. We want to talk about that because these are big picture items, but let's get down to the, in the words of the great theologian, Nacho Libre, the nitty gritty. Hebrews 13 is going to show us the nitty gritty of what it looks like to fulfill that purpose. And I, I just want to show you from the end of Hebrews 13 why I believe this is the will of God. What we're about to talk about in Hebrews 13 is the will of God, because at the end of Hebrews 13, it says, this is the will of God. So a lot of people say, well, what's the will of God? Well, we know. It's in Hebrews 13. And, and there's other places where it is, but it's here as well. Uh, stand with me. We're going to read. It's, all, it's up on the screen. So we're going to read. I just want to have a moment to honor God's word, to stand and read it. Here's what it says, verse 20, Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, look at this, this is a prayer. May he equip you, that means enable you, with everything good that you may do what? His will. There it is. And so he says this. Working in us that which is pleasing in what? His sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we approach your word hungry. Feed us. There are so many offerings in this world that will feed us poison and poorly. Your word is true bread. And your word is true life. Feed us. And help us to see Jesus. Him and him only. In his mighty name we pray. Everybody said, amen. amen. God bless you. Have a seat. Living your purpose practically. Whenever you want to know what God wants you to do, here's the thing. Go to the end of the New Testament letters. The New Testament is made up of two kinds of books. Simple. Historical narrative and epistles or letters. That's the New Testament. 27 books. We call them books, but 22 of them are letters. The first four books are the Gospels that recount the activity of Jesus Christ, his ministry, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. The first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The fifth book is the book of Acts, which talks about how the church carried on his mission to the uttermost parts of the world at that time. The rest, the next 22 books of the New Testament are letters. We call them books, but they're letters. Letters from Paul, letters from Peter, letters from John, the apostles, the people who walked and talked and walked and, and, and witnessed the works of Jesus. And in every letter, there's a format. For the first bulk of the letter, they tell us this is what Jesus did and here's what it means. We call that theology. But then the last part of the letter, they tell us, okay, now in light of what Jesus did, here's what you now do. We call that practical theology. That's how you're supposed to read the New Testament. The last part of every letter is practical instruction for what Christians should do, listen, based on what 
Jesus has done. Did you catch that? I say this because salvation is not you fix yourself up, clean yourself up, do a lot of what the Bible says, and then maybe God will have mercy on you and save your sorry soul. That's Islam. That's I'm a good person religion. That's works righteousness. That's every other, by the way, religion in the world. Do good and maybe the God of heaven will save you. That is not Christianity. Christianity is you cannot do good. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 says that. We cannot make ourselves come alive. Jesus Christ, by grace, finds us, saves us, resurrects us. He doesn't make good people better people. He makes dead people living people. And he resurrects us to new life in the Holy Spirit so that we can do what he wants us to do. So we don't earn it, we respond. We don't, we don't ask, we don't act and then God responds. God acts and then we respond. I hope you're catching that. So when we get to the end of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews is 13 chapters. For 12 chapters, the writer unpacks what Jesus has done. And the last chapter is, okay, now what? I'm a Christian, now what? Here it is, one chapter out of 13. A lot of people say the Bible's full of rules. Absolutely. Actually, the Bible is full of what Jesus and God has done. And then some things that we should do in response to that. And so here we are in Hebrews 13. How to live our purpose in light of what Jesus has done for us. Number one, open your life to others. If you want to live your purpose in Christ, you have got to open your life to other people. Don't close yourself off as is now the current trend in our society. Don't grow more suspicious of people. And please do not grow more suspicious of the church. I totally understand there are a lot of bad churches out there. Believe me, I have survived many bad churches. My mother, when I told her I was called to be a pastor and I felt that God called me to do what I'm doing now when I was very young, she said, uh-uh, no way, you ain't doing it. You know why? Because we had gone through hell in church. And she couldn't imagine that I would ever turn out into a good pastor. But I think that God brought me through all those bad churches so that I would know what not to do for you people. Amen. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that the number one problem with most churches is they're not open to new people or each other. Many churches become theology-centric. And we should have good theology. But because we're so theology-centric, we don't get open to new people because we expect everybody to live up to our expectations and we've been at it for 20 years and they're brand new. Wrong, we should be open to everybody. So the Bible says in Hebrews 13, one, let brotherly love continue. In other words, don't let your love for the Lord's house fade. If you've got your notes out, circle continue, circle continue because that's the temptation is to get out of the church after a while. Well, I've already been there, done that. Or I've had a bad experience with church people. Welcome to the club, man. Or somebody offended me at church. Yes, and these are sinners saved by grace. They are not perfect. Okay, so you've got to continue to get back into church. Don't you understand the devil will go to work with you all week trying to give you an excuse to not come here on the weekend? You need to resist him firmly. Wake up on Sunday, set the alarm clock Saturday night. Hey Siri, set the alarm Saturday night. I need to get myself to the house of God. That's where I fellowship with the church. Then it's a small group. That's where I get to know one another. And I start talking to other people and I develop relationships. But the second kind of person that you want to open your life to 
is the stranger and the prisoner. So first of the family of God, then the stranger and the prisoner. Look what it says in verse two. Do not neglect to show hospitality. Don't neglect to be open to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now that is a cool scripture. Because it's saying that you opening your life to somebody, you never know, you might be talking to an angel. You say, does that really happen? Yes, it does. I know, number, number one, in the Bible, it happened at least three times. It happened to Abraham and Lot, and they were both saved and blessed because they opened their home to strangers who turned out to be angels. It also happened to Samson's parents, and it also happened to John the Baptist's father. And you have to open your life to strangers because we, this is why we do it, theologically speaking, because we were once strangers to God. We were once on the outside looking in, and God sent his son to cross the dividing wall and to come into our world and befriend us and live among us and love us and then bring us into the family of the living God. If that was done for us, we have got to pay it forward and pass it on to the strangers around us. We are a church for those who don't do church. If this is your first church experience, I'm so glad you're here. If you just got saved last weekend, I'm so glad you're here. If you had a wild bender last night and you're here today, can I tell you, you came to the right place. We want to be here for people who are far from God and need Jesus. Amen. And so we have to open our hearts. Now, angels, so a couple, uh, several years ago, actually, I, I believe it happens still today that we open our hearts to people and strangers show up. Uh, angels show up. And uh, a couple years ago in the old building, we had a lady that she came to our church for the first time, scared to death. This is why we tell all the regulars to come to the front so that the strangers can sit in the back. Not because we don't like strangers, but because we know how intimidating it can be to be the new person at a church. Leave it for them. Some of you back row, long time Waters Church people, come. I won't bite, I promise. Sometimes the Holy Spirit only goes three rows deep, so you're missing out. So she came to the back row, she sat there, nervous, scared, felt like she needed to leave. She gets, she gets this anxiety, like some of you might be having right now, first time you guys, this anxiety, like, I don't know, I think I should leave, I think I should leave. And she said, this is her testimony, she said that there was a large black man at the end of the row, and she, he got up during the meet and greet moment, got up, didn't say anything to anybody, walked over to her, never saw this man in her life, and he said to her, you are in the right place, and you need to listen to what this guy says. That's all he said. He went back to his seat, sat down. She got saved, baptized, got her husband here, he got saved, baptized, children here, saved, baptized, they moved on since, but their whole lives changed. And the, the amazing thing about her testimony is she never saw that man again. And she was here for many, many years. I believe he was an angel. You say, why did you have to say that he was black? Because why do we always think that angels are white? Come on. Thank God for some big black angels. Hallelujah. <laughs> Come on, somebody. So this does happen. You, and here's the, here's the real principle, too. You know, when, when new people come into your life, you never know what they're going to bring. The benefits, the open doors. I think about the friends that I have made over the course of my life, the people that have opened me up to different authors that I never would have read. 
uh, different shows that I never would have watched, different habits or hobbies that I never would have picked up on. See, new, people are a treasure. People are a treasure. And this is why so many people are poor in spirit because they don't let people in. Let people in. You never know what that person made in the image of God is going to bring into your life and what you are going to bring into their life. Then he says, verse 3, remember those who are in prison as, those, as though you were in prison with them and those who are mistreated because you're also in the body. The prisoner, I want to say for one moment, time out and say, speak to the audience uh, on television. I want to say hello to my brothers in Christ at Norfolk MCI Prison. Hello, brothers. I was with you in May. We had a fantastic time. I know you watch this every week. I'm coming back soon. God bless you. Keep the faith. Amen. Yeah. I told them I would say that. So that was for you guys. And you know what? I was there in May. And I'll tell you something. Those guys, I know, you think, some of you say, oh, they did some bad stuff. Yeah, but the only difference between what they did bad and you did bad is the state of Massachusetts has determined that what they did bad is illegal and what you did bad is fine. It's the only difference. We all need Jesus. So I was in there worshiping. I'll tell you something. You want to feel the Holy Spirit, get yourself into a prison where people are worshiping Jesus. The Holy Spirit was real in that room. And God is ministering to those guys. When I, when I spoke, about seven guys put their hands up, came to Christ, put their faith in Jesus. Every week, more and more people coming. And we want to go to the prison. We have a guy here uh, named Carl. He goes to the prison every other week, uh, a week and ministers to guys in prison. Can we talk about actually doing what the Bible says instead of just hypothesizing about it? Come on, somebody. Like, like, let's do what actually the Bible says to do. I know we're into Christian conferences and Christian concerts and Christian rock music and Christian and Christian and Christian. But anyways, what about doing what the Bible says? Jesus said in Matthew 25, 36, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And they'll say, well, when did we see you? And he said, whatever you did to the least of these, my brothers, the church, you did to me. That's being a Christian. That's the now what? That's your purpose. Number two, close doors. Close the doors to illicit desires. So as much as you want to be open to people, you want to be closed to illicit desires. It's funny how the natural human tendency is to close ourselves off to people and open our lives to illicit desires. Our, nature, our natural tendency is to do the exact opposite of what the Scripture teaches us. Two illicit desires that are going to rob you of your purpose. The first one is the illicit desire of lust. So he says, let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed, somebody say marriage bed. Marriage bed be undefiled for God would judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. I guarantee that the first piece of text that you go to in this scripture is God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. And that's true. But let's first talk about what the Bible says positively about marriage. How many think it's pretty stinking cool that the scripture says marriage bed? <laughs> You're not ready for this. <laughs> He's talking about the marriage bed. He doesn't talk about the marriage kitchen. He doesn't talk about the marriage date night. He doesn't talk about the marriage conversations and communications and sitting down and talking about our feelings. That's what women want at marriage conferences. He's talking about the marriage bed. And he says, 
Make sure you keep the marriage bed clean. How do you do it? By getting in the marriage bed and doing sex God's way. Hallelujah, Jesus. Finally, some of you guys are like, finally, a scripture I can get on board with. Hallelujah. Here's the reason. Lots of guys struggling with pornography and sexual immorality. And that's, tor- that's terrible. But there's so many guys that are struggling with that while their wives don't have sex with them. Then the woman is horrified to find out that her husband is fulfilling this God-given desire in illicit and wrong ways while she's been making him starve sexually for weeks, months, maybe even years. I have a friend, his name's Mark Gunger. He does marriage conferences all across the world. And he deals with a lot of fallout from preachers who do not last long-term because they fall into sexual morality. And he says, 99% of the time, the wife stopped having sex with him. How can we demonize the dude who didn't do what he should have done and not talk about the woman who didn't do what she should have done? You got to give yourself bodily to your spouse. And by the way, ladies, if you want just companionship and you're not into sex, don't get married. (laughs) Marriage is for sex. You can get companionship anywhere. You can have a friend to talk to anywhere. That's why small groups exist. Small groups are marriage without the sex. (laughs) Go ahead. If you want a friend, just do that. But if you want to be married, you better be ready to have sex because that's what it's for. And, and we always think the Bible is, oh, oh anti-sex, anti-sex. No, no, the Bible is very pro-sex. The very first commandment God gave to Adam and Eve is be fruitful and multiply. In other words, get in bed, make babies, fill the earth. Fill the earth with your babies. How many know that's a lot of stinking sex if you're going to fill the earth with babies right there? But godly sex. The problem is we are conditioned and programmed in this culture because of media and TV to think that the only kind of good sex is illicit sex. Ask yourself the last time you saw a romantic sexual scene in a movie or TV show between married partners. They don't exist. It's always the illicit affair, the adulterous relationship, the hot and heavy one-night hookup scene. And all the data shows, all the scientific data shows that those sexual escapades are empty and hurtful and harmful. And the people, this is fantastic, from the University of Chicago, a study was published. The people who are most satisfied with their sex life are conservative Christian women who have sex with their husbands regularly. A couple of years ago, I was talking about this, and a sweet old lady came up to me, and she said, Pastor, thank you so much for saying that. You know, you spoke to my heart. I'm going to go home and hug my husband. I said, Lady, I didn't tell you to hug him. I told you to go get naked for him. Isn't it funny how we want to spiritualize marriage? We want to spiritualize, oh, marriage is supposed to be this and that. And we'll buy books. Oh, man, we'll buy books off the shelves. We'll clear the shelves out on how to communicate in marriage. Date night secrets for your marriage. All these Christian books about marriage. When the Bible is just like, what the heck you doing? Just get in the marriage bed and get busy. Some of you are not coming back next weekend, but you are supposed to be here this weekend. This is good preaching. 
What do you want me to talk about? Philosophies and higher all, you know, things in the heavens? Or do you want me to talk about real life? <laughs> so I just think that you're going to do yourself a whole heck of a lot of good if you do what God says to do in the marriage bed. And instead of trying to avoid the bad, you just get so busy practicing the good, you don't have time to look at the bad. Ooh, that was good preaching right there. You missed it, but that's true. Second illicit desire you want to avoid is greed. Nothing, will, uh, um, sex outside of marriage will rob you of your purpose, but so will greed. It's funny how sex and greed, sexual morality and greed, always go hand in hand in the Bible. They're always next to each other. They're even next to each other in the Ten Commandments. And the studies show that the number one cause of poverty in this country is single-parent homes because of divorce and immorality and out-of-wedlock children. Number one cause of poverty. So we engage in illicit sex to our own financial demise, and then we struggle with greed because we're poor in many respects. And not just people who do that are struggling with greed. Everybody struggles with greed to some extent. Married people struggle with greed. But greed will take you right out of the church. Here's what it says. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. But why? Because God will never leave you and never forsake you. Our answer to greed is to remind ourselves God is always with us. He's never going to leave you. The Bible says, I have been old and I've been young and I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging bread. God will provide for you. The, 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 the more that you look to money to do what only God can do for you, the more you're going to disconnect yourself from the body of Christ. I've had several young men that were working here, and they got the greed bug in them, and they wanted more and money and stuff and houses, and they left the call of God to pursue the money, and many times the guys still don't have the house, and they're outside the church because that's what greed will do. 1 Timothy 6.10 says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not money, the love of money. Wealth can be a good thing when you know what to do with it. But the love of money, the desire for more, it will cause you to wander from the faith and pierce your life, your life, not mine, yours, with many pains. But the Bible also says earlier in verse 6 of that same chapter in 1 Timothy 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment is not getting what you want. Contentment is wanting what you got. Being content. And sometimes we are so programmed, again, in this culture, to want what we see and what others have. And what we don't spend enough time doing is looking at our lives and being thankful for what God has given. Thank you, Jesus. Like the next time you scroll up on Instagram or Facebook and you start thinking about how somebody else has something you should have, shut it off, put the phone down, and take a good account of your life and say, thank you, God, I got a bed. Thank you, God, I got a car. Thank you, God, I got a roof over my head. Thank you, God, I got this person in my life. Thank you, God, for the clothes on my back. Jesus is good. That'll speak to your spirit. That'll kill the sense of greed. And that'll keep you connected to your purpose. Number three. Deepen yourself in the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this is the longest portion of the passage, but basically what he's going to unpack for us here in Hebrews 13 is 
Don't move on from Jesus. It's all about Jesus. This is why he says in verse 8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. The gospel is the center of the church. Now, that's important for you to hear because a lot of churches make worship the center of the church, the music the center of the church, the style the center of the church, the what the pastor wears on stage the center of the church. What kind of church are you? Oh, we're this kind of church, that kind of church, Catholic, Protestant, Baptist, Pentecostal, Charismatic, Presbyterian. We're congregational. We're elder-driven. We're Presbyterian. We're all these. What? That's not the center of the church. The center of the church is Jesus. So every time we read the word of God, after I read it, I pray, and you guys are aware of this by now, if you've been here any amount of time, at the end of the prayer, what do I say? May we see Jesus. It's all about him. I want to disappear on this stage and for you to see Jesus. That's my goal. If I don't lead you to the Savior, I haven't done my job. And so what we do here in verse, uh, what, we, what we see here in verse eight to 14 is there's two temptations a Christian will constantly face. Number one, to stray into mystical teachings, this idea of moving beyond the simple things of Jesus. This, Jesus gets you in, but then there's deeper spiritual, like, you know, heebie-jeebie weirdo stuff that you need to get into. Watch out for that. That's how cults start. It is. That's how Jim Jones takes 700 people to Guyana and has them drink cyanide-laced Kool-Aid because there's deeper things you need to go. Nope. The deepest thing you'll ever experience is the love and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. But the second thing is to slide back to where you came from. So the Hebrews, the Hebrews to which this letter is written were Jews who had come to Christ. And in the first century, the Roman government made allowances for religions that were older than themselves, older than the pagan religions of Rome, to be exempt from worshiping the pagan gods. But guess what happens if you became a Christian? You're worshiping a savior who just showed up in the first century and you were no longer exempt to worship as you saw fit. So you were under intense pressure by the Romans to fit in with them or to fit back in with the Jews. And it was very hard for them to hold on to Jesus. They suffered greatly for this. This is why he says, don't move on and don't move back. Don't go back to Judaism. All that stuff points to Jesus. And don't get into Roman paganism. That stuff is empty. This is what Hebrews 13 is saying. So he says, do not be led astray, verse 9, by diverse and strange teeth. Don't, don't do it. Um, by the way, the verse implies that there will be no shortage of strange and diverse teachings. And there will always be these strange and diverse teachings. You've got to be watchful of this. Then he says, verse 9b, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve at the tent have no right to eat. Who serve at the tent? Who are those? That's the Judaic prince, uh, practices of sacrificing animals. And they bring their animals to the tent and they sacrifice them on the altar. And then by that, they believe their sins are atoned for. And here's what he's saying to Christians. He's saying, no, no, no. We have an altar because Jesus is the once and for all final sacrifice. And because Jesus died for the sins of the world, we can come to God at the altar of grace at any time and eat the food of God's presence and God's word at any time. So the other day I was late. I woke up late. This happens 
to every one of us. Usually what I do the first thing in the morning, get into the Word of God, pray. I didn't have time. So I get into my car, and I'm feeling like a negative 10. And uh, I just turn off the radio, and I remember that I can talk to God anywhere, anytime, wherever I am. Turn off the radio, and I just start talking to God. Did my devotions in the car. Did my time with the Lord in the car. Hallelujah. Created an altar at the steering wheel. You can do that. You know why? Because that's what the new covenant signifies. We no longer have to go to Jerusalem. We no longer have to go to the tent. We no longer have to go to the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies has been opened so that God can come and dwell with us wherever we are. And by the end of that car ride, I went from a negative 10 to a positive 10. That's the power of just spending time with God where you are. We have an altar. Hallelujah. So it says, verse 12. Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify people through his own blood. In other words, Jesus was an outcast in his day. And then it says this in verse 13, therefore let us go to him outside the camp. Again, we're gonna feel like outsiders in this world. Christian, you're gonna feel like an outsider in this world. And let's go there. Because that's where Jesus was. That's what he's saying. Jesus was crucified outside the city gates. And uh, you have to realize that Jesus was rejected by two, two groups. Two groups of people put Jesus on the cross. The religious and the, and the politics, po uh, politicians. The political powers and the religious both rejected Jesus. Religious people will reject you. Religious people meaning people who think that they get to God because they're good. And the politics of our world will reject you. Uh, Actually, it's kind of ironic that in our country and in our generation right now, politics are becoming religious. We have two great religions in this country. It's the Democrats and the Republicans. It's becoming religious. Just open your eyes and see it. Because what is a religion? Religion has one key leader who dictates to all the people what everybody should believe. And if you step out of line with what they say you should believe, you are an outcast. So now you have to toe the line, either Republican or Democrat, every single thing. It's becoming a religious fervency too, heated rhetoric. The other side is the enemy, not our, not our citizens, fellow citizens now, enemy. And attacks back and forth is religious. Wars have been fought in the same vein in the name of religion. We are Christians. That means we do not fit comfortably into the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. Neither one is comfortable for us. Why? Because we do not serve a head of state. We serve the head of the universe. We serve the sovereign God who's over all of that. And you're going to feel ostracized. And you're going to feel exiled. And you're going to feel outside. And the Bible says, don't worry about that. That's where Jesus is. He's on the outside. Go to him. And when you come on the outside of this world, you will feel on the inside of the world to come. Four, engage in worship and good works. Simple Christian purposes here, friends. Engage in worship and good works. Worship is our vertical worship, our vertical love for God, and good works are our horizontal love for God. Verse 15, it's gonna talk about two sacrifices here. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise that is a fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Let's talk about that. When we gather in this room and we start singing, my suggestion is if you know Jesus, start singing. Don't be quiet. You say, I don't sing well. So what? That's why we turn the music so loud so we can't hear you. <laughs> Hello. Sing your out-of-tune heart out. Nobody's going to hear you anyway. 
And I believe that when you open your mouth and you start singing, something happens inside. And again, you can say, I don't sing, I don't sing. Let me bring you to Fenway Park. I don't even know if they do this anymore. Between the top of the eighth, bottom of the eighth, do they still do it? That stupid song we've been hearing for 15 years up here? Sweet Caroline, everybody bellows it out. Singing about some woman they've never met. How much more should we sing about the Jesus that met us? And open your mouth and do it. You say, I, I, I'm, I'm uncomfortable. Get over the uncomfortability. Open your heart. Start to lift your hands. I don't know if I should. I feel awkward. I don't know. So what? Nobody's looking at you. Nobody really cares. This is for your good, not my good. It's for your good. Don't neglect to offer a sacrifice of praise. Verse 16 says this, though. Don't neglect to do good works or to do good and share what you have. These are the sacrifices that are pleasing to God. I love what Martin Luther said about the gospel. See, the gospel is that Jesus paid it all for you. That means you cannot pay for your salvation. That means that no good work that you do makes you now saved because of your good work. That's what Martin Luther taught the church is the great reformation of the faith. Uh, we are who we are today because of that reformer back in the 1500s. But he said a famous line, very great line. What he said was, if Christ has paid all of our debt and done all the work for us to be saved, here's what he said. God does not need your good works. Your neighbor does. God does not need you to sacrifice for him. He's got everything. Your neighbor needs it. So my question is, practically speaking, purpose stuff here. As a Christian, do you regularly share the things that you have with other people? This is, this is a simple question. It's a very important question. That's Christianity. Many years ago, my wife and I felt led to give a couple in our church who was struggling with cancer a very large sum of money. I was praying. The Lord spoke to my heart. Very rarely this happens. So I wrote the check. I gave it to them. Uh, eventually, the cancer is treated, and I believe the guy was healed and treated by the doctors. And they came back to me with twins. They said, we were struggling to have children because of the cancer treatments. We took the money you gave us, put it into in vitro fertilization, and here's what we have today, two little babies. You never know what your good deeds will do for other people. My question is, do you do it? Because we can talk about being Christian all we want until we actually do Christianity. What does it mean to anybody? Let's do what the Bible actually says. We're doing action groups as a church, by the way. Action groups. Now, we have small groups. They are, our small groups are becoming life groups. And we're going to have several kinds. E-groups online, small groups, which are what we do currently, and now action groups. So life groups, and under the life group umbrella, e-groups, small groups, action groups. What are action groups? Action groups are for people who like to do stuff instead of talk. So maybe your excuse has been, I don't want to be in a small group because I don't like to talk, and I don't like to talk to people. <laughs> you know, and especially the dudes among us, you guys don't really like to sit and talk about your feelings, and you think that's what all small groups do. That's not what they do, by the way. But nonetheless, you don't like it. So guess what? Excuse destroyed. Because now we're creating action groups where we're going to put together groups of people that will be a small group, but they will go and they will do things for people, like moving people from house to house, or shoveling an old lady's driveway, or raking somebody's lawn, or picking up somebody's house, and making sure that good deeds are done by the body of Christ so that people can see Jesus really does make a difference. 
Action groups coming to Waters Church. Finally, lastly in this message, honor your local church. You want to live your purpose practically. You want to live your purpose. Honor the church. This is um, what the scripture says. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls. Notice this. As those who will have to give an account. I have to give an account to God for what I tell you. That brings a holy fear over my life. Now, now it says this, let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. So many pastors burn out because the people do not support what he tries to do. I, I just want to tell you, thank you for not being like that. It is a joy. I stand here happy, full of joy to be your pastor because you people actually do this already, but I just want to encourage you to continue to do it. When we make changes coming up big things weekend, I'm asking for your support. When you hear what we're trying to do, when you hear, by the way, sometimes, let's have a little family chat for a moment. Come in real close. Sometimes we ask someone to leave. That's hard. But we only do it when there's continued habitual and very public sin that they refuse to repent of because we know that it'll spread. Now, sometimes you'll hear from that person about how awful we are, how mean we are, how we all of a sudden now spend money unwisely. It's always amazing how it's always the same accusations. That, we expect it. I'm asking for your benefit of the doubt to look at the fruit of what's happening here and to keep trusting us because what we do, we do for you and your protection and your long-term faith. It's a very sacred calling. We take it very seriously. I know I joke around up here. I know I like to make you laugh, but I take it very seriously. Thank you for supporting me. Can somebody get him a glass of water? Thank you for supporting me. <laughs> I'm sorry. Nobody look. Nobody look. Keep looking at me. <laughs> we need to edit this out of the video. Thank you for supporting me. Thank you for being here and being a submissive church and honoring church. But we do it because you need a body. You need leaders. This past week, big news in the church world of a very famous, popular Christian author, pastor, who left the faith. And everybody's freaking out. But I want to say this. Every Sunday, hundreds of thousands of Christian leaders around the world get up and lead the church faithfully. Let's not focus on the one Let's focus on the, on the good ones. You know what I'm saying? It's like saying all cops are racist. Nope. A few are. It's like saying all public school teachers are sexual predators. Nope. A few are. Let's not lump everybody in with the big group. And let's honor the ones that do faithful work in our culture and in our community. And I believe that when you do this, God's going to bless you, and you're going to live your purpose, and your life is going to be blessed in Jesus' name.